Welcome to the Media Insider, the podcast which gives you the secrets on how to get into the media. Every episode, I interview a commissioning editor or producer about exactly what stories and interviews they commission for their pages or programme and how you can pitch to them. I'm your host, Helen Croydon. I'm an author, a former journalist, and now I run a small PR practice called ThoughtLeadershipPR.com helping business leaders, academics, entrepreneurs and public figures become better known as experts in their field. If you like this podcast, please tell your colleagues, share it on social media. That's how others find it. So let's start right off, Niall, by just giving me an overview of what Hook is and what your role is as editor. Yeah, so I guess the best way to do this is to give an extremely condensed history in regards to Huck. There are various different histories, all of them vary in length, but I'll try and do the shortest. So basically, in 2006, a group of founding editors started a publication that was primarily interested in board culture. And by that, I mean snowboarding, skateboarding and surfing. And the reason they started that is because they felt that, you know, all of the other publications that were out there on the market exploring you know these these worlds in a way that was kind of you know kind of derivative and top line and they didn't really see anything out there that was kind of diving in to the to the kind of culture and the world in a way that kind of respected them and intellectualized them so they basically decided to kind of launch that for themselves the world moved as it does huck kind of evolved in in conjunction and uh, they kind of took those founding attitudes you know the rebellion and they used it, I guess, as a lens to look at the world more generally. So they kind of sort of opened their eyes to culture more broadly, music, film, photography, politics and activism. And again, sort of, like I said, as, as time went on, that kind of became Huck. I like it. You know, we have this saying in-house, which is a little bit corny, but I'll share it anyway, that Huck is an attitude rather than, you know, a set kind of manifestation or, or kind of entity it's kind of a way of looking at the world a kind of way of looking at culture a way of looking at people and that kind of informs everything we do gosh I got so many questions Uh, what's the readership Uh, because I know you're on an online platform and a a print publication what's your readership of, of your online so online we have up to sort of half a million readers a month wow which is great and we kind of it's it's interesting actually in regards to online because we find that we kind of have there's the huck audience but within that we we have kind of subsets because like i mentioned we're a broad church we look at quite an expansive section of, of culture in the world so for instance you know we might have people who come to us every month for our photography that's that's a big part of who we are but you know at the same time we have people who live for coverage of politics and activism and you know these these can be really defined audiences and there might be a bit of crossover but you know at the same time they're kind of distinct too yeah so it's kind of i guess when we look at our kind of audience demographics it's a real broad church which you know is is actually kind of really exciting to us because it means we can speak to different people in different ways and is it international or uk yeah Totally. It is international. And it's kind of funny, um, through through complete accident, and I probably shouldn't, you know, call it that, but we really, really kind of established a strong US audience. I imagine, you know, if you go back to the very beginning, uh, surfboarding and skateboarding in particular are very US-centric uh, as, as cultures, as, as sports. So it probably starts there, to be honest. Our audience uh, split between the UK and the US is almost 50-50. 
Okay. And and we do have readers globally as well. But that's a big that's a big part of um of who we are. It's it's, it's incredibly important. You know, uh, the Huck View is global. We're based in London, uh, so a lot of the on the ground stuff that we as editors do is in London. But we have a network that spans all over the world. I mean, just in our last issue, for instance, our last print issue, we had a story in LA. We had a story in Beirut. We had a story in. Bashwa, which is in Oman, we had a London story. You know, we, we are completely global in our world. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the content. Are there any regular slots or columns or pages? And I suppose now I'm talking both about the digital platform and the print publication. Perhaps you can just give us a little tour of both. I'll try and be as quick as I can because there are quite a few. So I'll maybe um, highlight perhaps some of my favourites or some of the most regular. In print, uh, I guess, if you're going to put it at its most top line, we have longer on-the-ground features, which usually involve a reporter and a photographer or you know someone who does both, exploring a, a, a subculture or a movement or, or an idea on the ground of the people who kind of make it up. And that will usually be a kind of longer feature between 1,500 and 2,000 words, um, and that's kind of the bread and butter of Huck, the print publication. Uh, and then sort of alongside that, we have we have profiles and interviews. And these will usually be with kind of well-known sort of figures from across the world. So culture, broadly speaking, politics and sport, which are kind of our main pillars. So they're kind of, I guess, if you have the kind of two forms of... Are they tend, do they tend to be celebrity interviews or just people doing some amazing or normal-ish people doing amazing things? It can kind of be a combination of the two. Like I kind of said before, Huck is, Huck is kind of an attitude which, which, you know, you kind of see in people, be them kind of notable figures, as you say, or, or just, you know, quote unquote normal people doing, doing incredible work. Anyone who is being seen to paddle against the flow, to use that term, and do things on their own terms, do amazing work in their own way, kind of qualifies as a Huck character, in my opinion. And of course, you know, it's, it's a case-by-case basis. There's no kind of real set formula. But we're pretty open in terms of the people we cover. But we, what's key to us, I guess, is, is you know, that they, they align with our values and, and are seen to kind of exercise them in the work that they do. Yeah, so your role as editor, what are you responsible for? Is that commissioning stories from a team of writers is it primarily commissioning role or is it also like a bit of writing a bit of commissioning dealing with PRs and dealing with freelancers yeah it's quite a multifaceted role really because we're quite a small team which means we're all able to get our hands dirty in in kind of various different ways which is which is kind of I think one of the one of the best things about working for a kind of smaller independent publication. But I guess on a day-to-day level, uh, my primary focus is the print magazine, which I kind of oversee. But when I'm not doing that, I'm kind of working alongside Daisy Schofield, um, our digital editor, just kind of coordinating our daily output online. She does all the heavy lifting, um, but I'm kind, of, I'm kind of there to support. But yeah, I guess my day-to-day is commissioning writers and photographers, as you say, sort of liaising with PRs and you know, managers uh, when necessary to kind of help kind of oversee coverage. And then also as well, Huck belongs to a, to a larger company, a creative agency and publishing house called TCO. So I guess in my role, I'm kind of the bridge between the Huck team and the rest of the business in that sense, which sees me doing, you know, all manner of things. 
How many, uh, how big is the team then who work on Huck magazine? The Huck team. So we have Andrea, our editor-in-chief, who again sort of is... Uh, is kind of a bridge between the rest of the business, TCO, and the Huck team. She was editor of the magazine for, for many years and has kind of, in many ways, um, made it what it is today. So there's Andrea, there's myself, there's Daisy, who I've already mentioned, who is our digital editor. Ben Smoke, who's our politics and activism editor. There's Ben Cook, our other Ben, who is our social media editor. And that's kind of it, I think. And they work across the digital and the print. Yeah, like I said, we're a small team, so it means there's a lot of kind of fluidity in how we work. So, you know, when it comes to sort of pitching and, and commissioning, although everyone has their own, own kind of sort of set beat and that tends to align with what they're interested in personally, journalistically, there's a lot of kind of crisscross and movement. And that's kind of how we like it. It's, it's how we work best. So it's a real kind of team effort in that sense. So how do you plan things? Is there a system? Is there a weekly meeting or a daily meeting? Yeah, so I guess with print, it's a little bit different because it's more staggered throughout the year. So I guess digital is maybe the best example to give. But we have a a kind of pitches meeting every Tuesday. In normal times, that would be in person. We'd all sit around a table and have an actual chat. But these aren't normal times. Um, So it tends to be, you know, we we hop on a call. And everyone kind of goes through what's on their radar. And that can be a combination of pictures they've had through from PRs, from, from freelance writers, from freelance photographers. It could be stuff that's just on their radar personally. It could be stuff that we've seen that we feel should, we should be covering. And that will lead to a discussion as to how we cover it and who covers it. We meet up once a week, but kind of secondary to that, we're always talking anyway. And these aren't normal times. So it's talking by email, it's talking by messaging platforms. But we're kind of always in dialogue in regards to stuff that's coming through, stuff we feel we should be doing. So this brings us nicely onto the pitching part of the podcast, which our listeners get lots of value from. So uh, Tuesday's your meeting. That's very good to know. So how many pitches do you get? Is it a lot? Yeah, wow. I do get a lot. I do get a lot. I I know the rest of the team do as well. I don't know if I can kind of give an exact figure, but I would say I, I kind of wake up to hundreds of new e- emails every day uh, would be would be a fair ballpark. Yeah. So what are the typical ways that pitch from either a PR or someone, a member of the public themselves that wants to get their story into the media or even a freelance journalist who might be pitching to you? What's the typical way do you think that a pitch might materialise into into coverage so you know for example would it be offering a full story would it be offering a quick quote yeah so we it it would always be it would always be for a story I think something that you know I find quite frustrating myself is when someone gets in touch and says I want to write about this or um uh, are you you accepting freelancers at the moment you know like we get loads and loads and loads of emails and that's not to sound self-important or anything like that um so if someone's going to get in touch I think just get straight to it is is the kind of best advice I could give but uh, someone getting in touch with a story and, and why we should be covering it you know um, be concise be to the point I guess that's a surefire sort of route to success what about if someone uh, what about opinion pieces because I know that you do have those on your website do you ever get uh, not necessarily journalists but members of the public or, or PRs who are pitching opinion pieces is that something that you can use yeah totally uh, I guess a really nice example of that is maybe charities getting in touch so if it's an issue that Huck has currency in as it has explored in the past I guess uh, a good example would be sort of anti-deportation charities um, sort of migrants rights charities mm. who have sort of 
you know, PRs get in touch on their behalf saying, you know, we have someone who'd be happy to write this. Um, and usually it'll be kind of anchored to something that's happening in the news at the moment. Yeah, yeah. So it has to be topical still. Uh, with op-eds, they, we, we kind of, we say at Huck we like to be reflective and we don't really like to be anchored by the news cycle. Yeah. We like to be able to take more time with stuff to offer, you know, a kind of alternative view, a view that you're not kind of not seeing, you know, on every other kind of publication or, or website and you're not seeing all over the Twitter timeline either. Yeah. We want, we want to kind of bring something genuinely meaningful to conversations and often that means taking a bit more time. But the vast majority of op-eds will be obviously linked to some kind of conversation that's happening in the public domain at the time. And what about press releases say if someone gets in touch with you with either you know a news line like a new event or some new research you know I'm, I'm sure you must get loads of those um how likely are you to be able to use something like that research again if we I wouldn't want to rule anything out because I think you know everything is value in a way in terms of what ha- you know what kind of materializes into stories most regularly for us It'll be press releases linked to some kind of, I guess, cultural release. It could be, you know, a musician putting out a new album, for instance. It could be a photographer, a photographer announcing a new exhibition or photo book. They would be the most regular um, press releases that, you know, do ultimately come to fruition for us. But, you know, if, if we're getting stuff through, you know, reports, stats, they they could well form the basis of a longer reported feature that, that one of us kind of takes on ourselves or we commission out. So yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't rule anything out. The key thing, I guess, for me would be that it's relevant to us. Um, you'd be surprised how often we get emails that just you know wouldn't wouldn't be stuff we cover in in a million years. Um, and that's not to point the finger at anyone, but I think it would be it's it's super helpful for everyone involved if you know whoever's getting in touch with a pitch, um, be it a fully formed story, be it you know the beginnings of one, that they just know who Huck are, that they've spent a bit of time on the website, they've read the magazine. So. What are the pitching no-nos? And I'm on, you can throw in a, p- a few pitching yes-yeses if you want as well, so we don't make it too negative. Um, but yeah, what what are your uh, your top niggles on that? Yeah, I guess I, I, I'd i like to throw in a few yeses because I don't want to be too down in the dumps. But um, no-nos, I guess sort of like I said, it's it's always so obvious if if, if the person pitching Again, be it a journalist, be it be it, be it a PR, just hasn't read Huck or, or isn't familiar with Huck. You know, it will stick out from from the first line, really. Um, so my kind of my my advice in that sense to anyone uh, with a story for Huck would be to spend a bit of time with Huck, get to know it, get to know what we do, and and, and that'll kind of sort of speed things up in terms of how the pitch is actually structured and formulated. It needs to be written well. Basically, if if it takes me a bit of time to get through the pitch, if there are grammatical errors, if the writing's not clear, if I'm not really sure what's going on, that doesn't really bode well for the subsequent story. Um, and it's it's I guess the amount of emails that you do get in a day, you're kind of looking for reasons to say no rather than to say yeah. yes. Really interesting. So I think it has to be you know kind of little things, names spelled correctly, formatted well, concise. Basically, you know, write as you'd want to write the final piece otherwise you know it doesn't really give a good impression um and as well just be specific i think there's nothing worse than vagueness if you you know if the journalist is pitching a piece and you know it's they want to kind of maybe it's an opinion piece on why xyz is so important tell me why it's important don't just say it's important you know show me what you're going to um 
what you're going to write about, who you're going to talk to, how you're going to do that. And if you can do that, you know, in, in a concise way, you know, two to three paragraphs, short paragraphs, max, that shows me that when it comes to actually writing the final piece, you're able to do that and, and you're kind of... Yeah, yeah. What other no-nos? Don't send anything pre-written. You know, we, we don't want that. And likewise, if, if you're putting a pitch together, don't send, don't send an essay. You know, I've, I've had some pitches where I'm like, you've practically written the whole thing here. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, I think that's common. Yeah, and, and, and like I said, it's, um, you often don't have a lot of time to, to kind of get through emails. You're obviously, we're always kind of doing other stuff. If a pitch, you know, is going to take 10, 20 minutes just to get through, it's probably, it's probably not going to be successful, unfortunately. Uh, in terms of in terms of yeses, I realise I kind of you know embarked on a negative spiral there. I think every editor is different in terms of what they like um, and what they look out for. So I can only kind of speak for myself and on my own behalf. But I always look for maybe two to three short paragraphs, which uh, which from the get go, subject line, pitch, and you know the top line of your story. Um, and then when you actually get into the body copy, introduce yourself very briefly. Um, and then get straight into it. The top line, what, what exactly you're going to explore, who you'll speak to, and, and why it's a story for Huck. Um, and then I guess secondary to that, go into a little bit more detail in regards to you as a, as a person, as a contributor. Why, why are you the perfect person to, to write this piece or, or, or photograph this piece? Maybe link to your work as well. Definitely link to your work and sort of bonus points in its work that's relevant to the piece or relevant to Huck. Uh, so if you're pitching a story, I don't know, on motorcyclists if you've got some links that are kind of sort of tangential to that uh, maybe you've written about maybe you've written about them before maybe you've written about kind of similar cultures before um, that shows me that you know you've, you've got currency in that world and that you probably do a good job do you pay your freelance writers yes yes we do yeah we do we don't really have set rates because you know we we, we try and pay sort of fairly in regards to the work that's done so for instance you know a a piece that is is an op-ed will fetch less than a heavily reported piece in which the writer's going out, in which the writer's travelling, speaking to multiple people. So when people ask for set rates, we kind of always have to give a bit of a non-answer, which I don't really like doing, but that kind of is it. But, you know, I guess I guess what the key takeaway is that we'll agree the rate before any work is done and we always make sure the writers are paid fairly. What about pitches that come that not from writers, but from like PRs or members of the public? Are there, is there anything in those that, you know, make them, that typify them as being like promotional? Any like thing, turns of phrases, for example, that you think straight away, oh God, this is a pitch, not a story. That's a good point. I guess you can often, you can often tell by the language when someone's trying to sell you something almost. I think um, if, if a PR wanted to get in touch, for instance, and there was an opportunity that they felt would lead to a good story, it's, it's, it's kind of the same rule, as I kind of mentioned, for writers. Um, get straight to it, say why it's a story for Huck, and then go into a little bit detail, a little bit more detail. Vagueness, I think, is always a turn off. And just finally, away from pitching, are there any trends generally that you've observed maybe you know about the media either in what people are suggesting to you or just how the media is um is working right now yeah so what I've kind of noticed I guess personally is that sort of especially maybe this time last year certainly in the summer when we're in the throes of lockdown and the first wave we kind of treated it you know, that landscape of uncertainty and some of the restrictions that placed upon us as a kind of opportunity to experiment a little bit. Obviously, we couldn't work in the way that we were used to working. So we switched things up a bit. We kind of introduced new formats. 
we played around on different platforms. Not all of it was successful, but some of it was. And what's been really exciting for me is the energy, that kind of that openness to kind of give things a try. You know, that what's the worst that could happen attitude has kind of stuck. It's been quite contagious. And that's kind of sort of um, bleeding into all the work that we do now. And I, I would kind of stick my neck out and say a lot of publications have experienced a similar thing. It's kind of kickstarted a kind of DIY what the hell is, which is quite exciting. And and that's been that's been really good for us, I think. And that's not to say it was it was all easy and that it was all, you know, a ride. It's been it's been an incredibly challenging time. But I think we we used many of those hurdles in quite a sort of optimistic way. And I think secondary to that in terms of that DOI ethos, I think this was happening pre pandemic, but I'm certainly seeing what I, what I guess what I what I am seeing, what I've observed is that if people Young, young people, creative people, journalists, photographers, um, if they don't really see themselves or their voices represented in the media, they're not afraid to, to go ahead and create something that does. Gaudem are obviously the shining example of that and how successful they've been, and they do incredible work every single day. But, you know, there are, there are kind of newer publications and movements and organisations that are doing that too, that are following their lead. Do you think that risks a crowded, crowding the market, though? perhaps but i don't think a crowded market's a bad thing for for the media landscape at the moment we've we've lost a lot of really important magazines and organizations in the during the pandemic and even before that when times have been hard and for me as someone you know as an editor as someone who sort of works in this landscape seeing more publications is a really really positive thing i suppose the problem is like a lot of companies and brands are jumping on that trend as well so they're creating their own like branded publications or branded channels and then that instead of individuals who feel really passionate about a topic and therefore start a blog to write about it you're getting actually brands that put these big money behind it and then it threatens the integrity of stories because they become a little bit biased yeah I guess I think you can always tell when when something you know isn't isn't kind of pure in its meaning or its intention you know we at huck and at tco we work with brands sort of quite regularly it's 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 a way we kind of um it's a way we make money it's a way we sustain ourselves it's a way we're able to fund the journalism that we do and and we're open about that but what we do is we we make sure that when we work with brands um, and this is why they come to us that we're telling authentic stories they don't differ to what we're doing on a day-to-day basis it just might be that that the parameters in which we're which we're operating, which we're creating, and which we're telling stories is a little bit different. That's interesting. So, what sort of stories would they be? I guess it depends. It depends on the brand. It depends. It depends what they want to do. But you know, through TCO, and you know, and that's that's where Huck's involvement comes in. That's where my involvement comes in. A, a brand might kind of get in touch, for instance, and say, you know, we've we've got this thing that we we want to draw attention to. These these are the issues that it kind of deals with. How can we work together? And that's where we'll kind of use our journalistic expertise, our creative expertise. And this isn't just Huck, this is TCI business. And we'll work with them to kind of do something that is meaningful and, and does stand out from the crowd. And as you say, this kind of oversaturated landscape, of kind of quite surface level stuff. We're able to kind of, I guess, turn our eye to that kind of storytelling. And, 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 and to me, you know, I think, um, you know, the, there is much debate about this certainly in my industry but for me it's just an opportunity for storytelling that's that's why we're in it so they might part fund the the journalism behind that and they're telling a legitimate story but they're getting their brand mentioned and they're part funding the the means to do it 
certainly yeah that would be that would definitely be one example yeah and it, you know and it's still storytelling that's that's why we're in it if, if, if we can help people with that if we can help you know get real stories out there yeah that's that's a win for me absolutely i think that is a future area of media Niall Flynn, thanks so much for sharing all those insights. That's really, really useful. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to The Media Insider. Please share this podcast or rate it on your podcast app. That's how others find it. If you're keen to get into the media or get your message and expertise more widely known, then visit thoughtleadershippr.com and see how I could help. Or find me on Twitter. Just search Helen Croydon. Good luck with your pitching.